There's a running theme throughout the scripture passages we've read this morning of the idea of Jesus as a shepherd and us as the sheep. And I have never tended sheep myself. I grew up in Ann Arbor. There are not many sheep grazing on the hills of U of M campus. But I've talked to a few people who do tend sheep, and being called a sheep is not a compliment. They are rather stupid animals. The one thing that they do know is they know who their shepherd is. So if you walk out and you say, come here, sheep, the sheep's going to ignore you because you're not the shepherd and they don't care about you. But if their shepherd walks out and they've got some sort of distinctive tap where they tap their staff or they whistle or they call out using their voice or something, those sheep will hear that from like a mile away and waddle their rather rotund selves over to the shepherd because they know this is the guy. This is the one that takes care of me. This is the one that feeds me. This is the one that drives off the lion and the bear and all the things that you read about David doing in the Old Testament. This is the guy that keeps me safe and makes sure I have everything I need. So maybe being a sheep isn't such a bad thing if Jesus is the shepherd. If we knew one thing, maybe that one thing worth knowing is the voice and the likeness of the one who can save us and the one who can keep us safe, the one who can lead us in love, the one who can cast out all fear. If we know nothing but his voice and what he looks like and we do nothing but obey him, well, then that's the kind of sheep I can be okay with being. But see, we get these these divisions and these dividing walls. And Jesus, in uh, chapter 10 of John, he talks about how he is the good shepherd. And I know my sheep and my sheep know me. And there are these other sheep that aren't in this sheep pen yet. I'm going to go out and I'm going to get them too. So that we can all have one flock and one shepherd. And then you get to the Ephesians reading where Paul is writing this letter to the church in Ephesus and he's writing to them about circumcision and uncircumcision and how they've been having this, this fight about what, who really gets to be in or who needs to be out. See, circumcision was this thing where if you were a good Jewish person, you were obviously going to affirm circumcision. This is how we know who we are. This is how we are set apart from those unwashed Gentiles over there. So then when these Jewish apostles started preaching the gospel of Christ and people who were not circumcised started coming to church, the circumcised ones got a little nervous. Next thing you know, they're going to be eating bacon and calling it tasty. Because you see, they had the pen, right? They had their sheep pen. They had their gate. This is the one gate you're allowed to come in through. Here, This is the covenant that God gave Abraham. You have to obey this covenant if you want to be a good believer. If you want to follow the Most High God, we know how to do that. You have to do it the way we do. And so they have the little fence, and they have their shepherd, and they have their little flock, and they have everything set up just the way they like it. But see, Paul wrote the letter to the church in Ephesus. He wrote it from prison. And the thing he got accused of doing was allowing a Gentile into the parts of the temple where Gentiles were not allowed. Whether Paul was guilty or not is kind of irrelevant, because Paul would have been kind of proud of that particular crime anyway. You want to include a a Gentile Christian in the worship of the Most High God, Paul says, well, of course we do. So 
the church, they knew that there was this dividing wall that the Gentiles were not allowed to follow. They knew that Paul had been accused of letting a Gentile pass that wall. And so when Paul writes in Ephesus of breaking down that wall and bringing all people in and allowing everyone to serve Christ together as one congregation, as one body, they knew he meant it literally and figuratively and spiritually. That is how we break down the divisions that sometimes separate our churches is we appeal to the life, death, and resurrection of the God who became a man, Jesus Christ. Because if we can agree on that, what have we to fight about? And so you start looking at groups and, and how people kind of divide themselves. You know, little, little sheep pen philosophy, right? People just kind of naturally do that. And so for the Jews, it was obeying the law, the Torah, the covenant. Um, there was a news article where there was a, a Frenchman who got really offended that somebody commented on how there were a lot of different ethnicities represented on the French World Cup team. And they made the mistake of suggesting to the Frenchmen that they weren't all really French. Because you see, like, this idea of separating people that way just doesn't make sense. They were born in France. They grew up in France. They were educated in France. How dare you suggest any different? And so if you're from France, you see someone who was born in France, we're brothers. We're sisters. That's how they separate it. If you want to define, well, what does it mean to be an American? Well, we're fighting about that right now. But to be a true baseball fan of the Detroit Tigers, you had to have liked them in the early 90s when they were awful. And you have to be able to name at least one of their current pitchers right now because they're awful again. It is a great sorrow to my soul. But then if we had to ask ourselves, what are the real fences? What is the actual border that separates followers of Christ from people who are not followers of Christ? I have a sneaking suspicion those fences are a lot lower to the ground and a lot farther out than we think they are. So if you had to kind of figure that out, every group, I read a, a book that was on the, the church in Corinthians by the Reverend Dr. Laura Hunt. Many of you have known, met her. Uh, she's preached here once or twice. And she would say, well, there's, you define yourselves by the people who are, share certain characteristics with you but you also define yourself by what you as a group are not, right? So there's two different ways you can figure it out. Well, like we, for instance, do not do these things and we all do these things. So this is how we define who is part of that group, right? So if we were to make up some sort of list, if you're going to be a Christian, you must fill in the blank. I think I would pick something like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. Something that affirms the God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Something that affirms that Jesus is eternal. Something that affirms that he is God, always was God, and he existed before creation. But that he came to earth, he became a man just like you and I, or a human, I should say. And that by assuming humanity, his death and resurrection defeated death itself. And by his death and resurrection, we are saved. And there will be a resurrection someday. 
where all things that are broken will be made new. All things that are painful will be made healed. And I think that we would have to acknowledge the two commands that Christ gave when he was asked, what are the greatest commandments? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. I think that's the end of my list. Triune God, incarnate Son, salvation through death and resurrection, love God and love your neighbor. You can nod along to that list. I can call you brother or sister. I don't think we missed anything. So then the, the other half of that equation is what things can Christians not be? What are the things that would prevent us from being fully committed followers of Christ? And again, I think it's a pretty short list. I think cruelty would prevent us from being fully followers of Christ. You see, that is the opposite of what it would mean to love your neighbor as yourself. And by cruelty, I mean destroying things or destroying people for the sake of destroying them. To tear down instead of to build up and encourage or create. We must not delight in ruining things. I think that's incompatible with what God has called us to be and do. I think 1 Corinthians 5, in that same other letter, I think 1 Corinthians 5 would tell us that if there is someone who acknowledges that they are sinning and decides, I like this, I'm going to keep it anyway, that they have rejected God's guidance for their life. When that was happening in Corinth, Paul's recommendation to the church was to cast him out and to treat him as an unbeliever, which some people have taken to mean you should be really rude and never talk to them. But I think what it really means is that you should pray for them as a lost brother or sister and fervently hope that they come back soon. Because to do otherwise would be to be cruel. And I think the last is blasphemy. And I've heard blasphemy defined so many different ways. But I think at its essence, it's to deny God in any of his three persons his rightful place as Lord whether it's his rightful place as Lord in your life or Lord of the earth or of the things that he's given you to take care of. There are these things where to say, well, this is not God's. God doesn't control this. God didn't. It's to start cutting away at what God's being is. To claim he's anything but sovereign. To deny him in that way, I don't think is consistent with the faith. And again, three short things, and I think we're done. Like I said, I think the fence is much lower. And I think the boundaries are much wider, more inclusive than we, we often give them credit. So there's a lot of things that specifically just are not on those lists, right? We, we have the mountains of books that have been written about end times prophecy, right? Doesn't even make the list. Frankly, I care very little. As long as you live a life that is ready, he will come when he will come, and 
and you will be ready. I don't care when that is. Please don't fight about it. (laughs) You know, defining what is or isn't sin, interestingly enough, doesn't make my list. If there's somebody from the church down the street that thinks that something is sinful and our church doesn't, or vice versa, I'm not mad at the Lutheran church for having wine when they have communion. It's something we don't do, but they do, and I'll see them in heaven. It's fine. It doesn't make the list. Things like somebody's voting record doesn't make the list. If you're a Democrat, you can be brothers and sisters with a Republican in Christ. If you're a Republican, you can be brothers and sisters in Christ with a Democrat. Please don't fight about it. Believe it or not, you can be an Ohio State football fan and you can still be a Christian. This one blew my mind. I studied the scriptures for at least 15 seconds before having to admit that even Buckeyes could indeed gain eternal life. I had no idea. For those of you who are wondering, I married one, so. A lot of things that we like to fight about. We like to fight over spiritual gifts, prophecy, tongues. What place do those have in the church? We like to say, well, my church has it right. Your church has it wrong. You better find Jesus. And we forget that Christ is Lord of all. We need to stop building fences that God didn't build. So if we really do get that kind of a broad idea of who gets to come into our sheep pen, right? A lot of these fights that you see happening on Facebook just become sad, not because the people who are in them are wrong or misled, but it's just a lot of wasted effort that keeps us from doing what God has called us to do. It's hard to love your neighbor when you're yelling at them. It changes your heart, your, your actions. It's funny because scripture says out of the overflow of your heart, the mouth speaks. And that's obviously true. But I think the opposite is also true. I think that if we cultivate a habit of speaking love, we will find that we become more loving. That our practices and our behaviors can, in time, change who we are. We can decide to be more loving, even if we don't feel it yet. We're actually expected to obey before we feel obedient. And so when I I look through scripture, one of my favorite things to find when I was a Bible quizzer back in high school was to find a passage of scripture where it doesn't matter how you take it out of context, it stays true no matter what. You know, because Paul loved to quote things, right? And so as you go through a lot of Paul's letters, you'll find these passages where they're almost like hymn-like, you know? Like you can almost hear the meter of what he was writing, you know? You kind of lose a lot of it when it gets translated to English, because obviously he didn't write it in English, but you can tell, like, that's the kind of writing it's supposed to be. It's, it's poetry. It's something that was meant to be remembered and recited And it's supposed to be even more true in some sort of deeper way. There's a couple in Philippians. There's one in Ephesians. There's a couple in Corinthians. But 
My favorite was actually in a book I didn't study when I was a quizzer. It's in Colossians, chapter 1, starting in verse 12. And it goes for about nine verses. And to end our, our time this morning, I just want to read that right before we come to the table. Kind of as a reminder that this is what we believe. This is in whom we believe. And that this table is not intended to be for the members of our little club or our corner of the sheep pen. This is a table that extends forward and backward in time and through eternity. This is a participation with Christ. And Christ is far bigger than this one room. For 1 Corinthians 1.12 The Father who has enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross.